coming to you from the Barrier Islands Center on Virginia's eastern shore. This is Sharing the Mic with David Phillips. In each episode, we try to give you a different perspective of life on the eastern shore, whether it's about an occupation or simply stories of what people who have lived here have done in their careers. If you like what you hear, share it with your friends. Sharing the Mic is a monthly podcast with each new episode appearing the first of each month. My guest for this episode is the Honorable Croxton Gordon, retired attorney and former juvenile judge for Accomack and Northampton counties. Croxton Gordon, welcome to Sharing the Mic. Thank you, David. You're a native Virginian. Uh, You were born in Richmond, and from the sixth grade forward, you lived in Anancock here on the shore. Tell us about life in the 1960s on the Eastern Shore. For me, it was a great life. Made good friends. We had come from Luray over in the Shenandoah Valley. And the thing that, I, that struck me first was that the different age groups played well together. I was used to sticking to people my own age. And, but somehow, two years older, three years older, two or three years younger, it didn't matter here on the shore. We spent a lot of time outdoors. Everybody had bicycles, and you could ride anywhere you wanted to at any hour of the day or night, subject to your parents' rules. Many spent a lot of time on the water in boats, just fooling around or maybe some casual fishing or being terrorized by the older boys with bigger, stronger boats that would spray us or try to capsize us, whatever. (laughs) Uh, A little bit of water skiing, water sports in, in season. It was a free life, as I recall. All the parents knew all the kids, and you were welcome in anybody else's home, and you could often end up somewhere else for dinner or lunch or wherever. The high school you went to, was that the school that's now the Arts Center in Anancock? It is. It was Anancock High School. All 12 grades went in the same building. So we had the teeny kids and the almost adults. They were separated a bit by where in the school, but they all went to the same building and got along well. And We had our heroes that we looked up to and were afraid of. And people, the teachers knew everybody. Everybody knew the teachers. How large was the high school? I think we might have had 30 in my graduating class, something like that. Um, I thought mine was small. It was 87. (laughs) Yeah, I could could be wrong, but it's something on that order. The high school days were great fun. Uh, Sports was a big deal and rivalries with the other schools. At the time... It was before the consolidation of many of the schools. Northampton was the powerhouse. Cape Charles had its own high school. Central and Onancock were two separate schools that later combined into Nandua. Let's say Parksley and Atlantic combined into Arcadia. Uh, Shinkatig remains its own school. But at the time, you, you had... You know, different rivalries. Uh, Onancock's tradition was to play Central High School on Thanksgiving Day, and it was the big, big sports event of the of the year for us. And lots of lots of friends, lots of families came out for it. Basketball was not quite as big because nobody had a gym except Northampton. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had to practice, we had to share the Onancock Armory. I think you might have talked to, with Curtis Badger about those years. Yes. But um, that was a great time of, for sports. Um, I don't remember any tryouts. If you wanted if you wanted to play, you showed up. And there was general good sportsmanship, and I don't think anybody dominated the league. 
very much, although Anancock was, of course, the best all around. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and after high school, you went to UVA. Yes. Uh, studied and have a degree in mechanical engineering. And then you went into the Air Force. Yet here you sit as a retired juvenile court judge after a successful law practice. What made you leap from the rigors of mechanics and engineering to the study and practice of law? Gosh, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but I guess you've heard of the Peter Principle. But I, I enjoyed making things, building things, and the, I knew some engineers that I admired very much. Then at the end of college, well, I had a, a draft number of 16 back when that mattered, and so I went into ROTC, Air Force ROTC. And then at the end of college, I, I knew some lawyers on the shore and elsewhere, relatives that I admired a great deal, and the idea of of practicing law was a great appeal to me. Um, I had a little struggle in law school because I was used to getting answers, looking up the formula and plugging in the numbers, and here's what you need to build and how you need to make it. But in law school, you have a problem to solve, and what do you want the answer to be? <laughs> so I never had a great career in the Air Force. Well, not career. I had five years stationed at uh, Dover, Delaware, and then over in Picture Book, England, in the Cotswolds for a couple of years. It was a dream assignment. And came back here and started practice with Mr. Baxley Tankard, very well-respected lawyer in Eastville. And we were the biggest firm in the county, the, the two of us, and I was there for 24 years, I believe. Now, I need a civics lesson. Please tell me how it came about that you were appointed judge. You were appointed, right? It's not an elected. Correct. Did you have a particular interest in family matters and juvenile court? Yes. Uh, I'd done a lot of domestic relations work in private practice and even in the Air Force with people on the bases. And this opening came up rather quickly. Suddenly, the legislature chooses the judges. It's like passing a law. The delegates and the senators have to agree on it or proposed candidate. They usually defer to the local officials uh, when they make their choices, but the legislature deadlocked for a couple of years. And finally, the circuit judge, Judge Glenn Tyler, was fed up with it <laughs> and basically appointed me for a pro tem assignment. And so I served out a few months and then was lucky enough to get chosen or approved by the legislature. Can you describe for us the kinds of cases that you dealt with? Lots of things. Uh, family matters and juvenile cases. Uh, juvenile delinquency if kids break laws. Dependency cases, foster care cases for abused, abused or neglected children. Any criminal matters with adults where a juvenile is a victim or a family member is a victim, then they're, they're tried misdemeanors such as family abuse and so forth. That sort of thing, Fam mm -hmm. family involvement, either criminal or civil. Child support cases or non-support cases. Right. Um, in custody, visitation. We don't do divorces, but we do right up to the point of a divorce quite often with settling child custody visits and support, that sort of thing. So it's really a broad range of topics that you have to deal with. Um, well, now in retirement, you've got a a lot of time to follow the passions that you've had in life. And I recall when I came to the shore in 1996, you were involved in musicals at the dinner theater that Judy Beck was running uh, back in Exmoor. 
Were you always interested in music? I was, a little less formally. My parents were both musical, and I sang in church choirs from high school on and the glee club at the University of Virginia. We had always had a little itch to do things on stage. We had the Madrigal Singers. There was a great outlet for that sort of thing. And Judy gave people, a lot of people that wouldn't otherwise have gotten on stage and sung songs or danced or whatever, she gave people a chance to do that, I think, very successfully for many years. Mm-hmm. I was never a major part, but I always enjoyed watching and being in it when I could. What was the favorite show that you were in? Oh, a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum. Larry Lovelady, of course, who can do anything and bring down the house. And I was glad to be in his shadow. Joyce Holland, so many stars. I know that you're involved with the concert series at Hunger's Episcopal Church. What I didn't know until recently is that you also play the bass. I also knew that you had a passion for woodworking, which I thought was pretty much confined to the construction of Windsor chairs. (laughs) (laughs) Will you tell us about the intersection of music, woodworking, and I'm assuming engineering with regard to the bass you built and now play as a member of the Orchestra of the Eastern Shore? Wow, Uh, great question. I don't know if we have all afternoon to talk about it. I'd love to. Uh, An opening came up in the orchestra, and my brother played the cello and had played with the orchestra for a while, and he said, we can use a bass player, and I didn't know any better, so I thought I'd rent a bass for a while and sawed away on it for a while under the direction of Peter Dundon, who still uh, gives me lessons these days. And I don't know how it happened, but I thought, I wonder if I could make one of these things. And I found a book that's called So You Want to Make a Double Bass. And I I had done a lot of woodworking since teenage years, and I really was uh, heavily involved in Windsor chairs. I think I've made 150 or more just over the years, and other woodworking, cabinet making, and so on. A the instrument, a, a bass in particular, is fascinating the way it's engineered. You, you say the mechanical engineering. With, in engineering, you need to know what your materials can do, their density, their weight, their stiffness, how to fasten them together, and how to make something that works and serves the purpose. And a stringed instrument has so many complications. It has to be stiff enough to stretch the strings, literally drum tight, and not break. It has to be able to vibrate. It has to be portable. And so it's designed with different woods for different purposes. The different woods in the same instrument. In the same instrument, absolutely, yeah. The fingerboard, the thing under the strings is usually ebony. That has to be dead, stiff, easy to carve, can't wear, because the, it, the strings are always pressed against it or vibrating against it or scra- scraping against it. The front, the belly of the, of the instrument has to be able to, it has to be very light, and stiff and vibrate. That's where the sound comes from, is the vibration of the of the front of the, the instrument. In order to make the arch top, it has to start as a very thick piece of wood, or actually two wedge-shaped pieces of wood, thick in the middle, thin on the sides. Then you carve out the underside and you carve out the top or vice versa, I guess. And, and that's a magical thing in itself. The thinner it gets, the more it starts to vibrate and growl as you scrape away or plane away the shavings. It's, the sides have to be, or typically maple or poplar, they have to be able to be very thin and very strong to support the front. They have to be able to be bent because you steam them, get them hot and wet, and bend them around a form to make the, the beautiful side curves and the, and the back curves. It all has to be glued together so that you can take it apart. Uh, so we use hot hide glue that sticks is very strong but can be reversed. If you get it hot and wet again, it'll pop apart. And it's not unusual to take the front off a violin or a cello or a bass just to get to the insides. Uh, the insides are stiffened with the various blocks and braces. 
Oh, and the neck, the long thing with the twirly pegs at the top, uh, that has to be incredibly strong. It has to support the fingerboard, and it has to be smooth and just the right shape so that a good player knows where he is on the string, how far down, how far up you are. It's often very fancy curly wood just to show off the grain, and that's maple typically. I could go on and on, but yeah. Did you source the woods here on the shore, or is there a place that you can just order Wood for a base. There are there are places. I I found mine in various places. Um, I think one fellow brought down the the front wood from Canada. Another came. Another part came from out west somewhere. But since then, there's a place in Baltimore called International Violin something or other that has it all. You can just call them up and tell them what you want, and they can give you various grades and prices and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, there and I'm sure there are other places other than that, but they've been very good to me later in other projects. Right. Is this the only stringed instrument you've built? Actually, I've built uh, three cellos. Oh, my goodness. Made one for my brother and one for Stefan Dulce, who used to be the musician at Christ Church and Hungers Church, who played the cello in addition to brilliant piano, and Peter Dundon, our instructor. They're much, much smaller than a bass and more suited to my size of a shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since then, I've... There, hundreds of videos on YouTube and DVDs and books and things. So I refined it a little bit. I haven't done any of it for, for a while. How but long does it take? I mean, how long did it take you to make the bass? That was the first instrument, right? It, it was, yeah. Uh, I would think four, five, six months maybe, just working weekends and evenings. I'm surprised. I, I would think it would take much longer, frankly. Well, maybe I should have taken more time. <laughs> it's, I don't know anything about it. No, my my bass is actually in a luthier shop now, having some repairs. So I'm playing a a loner from uh, Pooh Johnson, mm-hmm. who has several basses and has lent me one. Finally, as we wrap up, tell us how you came to be involved with the Barrier Islands Center. Well, it's been only recently that I've been very much involved. I've always admired the folks who started it and what they've done with it. Laura Vaughn was just incredible with the energy and vision that she had and the, right. the folks with her. And now Sally and all the others who are here in the office with her have brought it to new levels. They've asked me to be on the board, which I am very honored honored with. Um, it's an easy job because they do all the work. <laughs> I love the, what they've done here with the different uh, Miriam Riggs displays of the various rooms, the hotel and the, the homes, and just how they can bring to life the artifacts that they have here. They've done a great job with the children's attic and all the their exhibits up there and prospecting for shark's teeth in the front yard sandbox. My granddaughters had a great time here one afternoon with a scavenger hunt. But the education part is so big and so important, I think. How do you envision this place, say, five, ten years from now? My hope is that they could continue with teaching people about the Barrier Island Center and the shore as much as they can, both visitors and people who live here, and the value of the islands and the value of the ecology here, wildlife, shellfish, finfish, everything. Ten years, I'm sure there's going to be tremendous pressure to develop the Barrier Islands, turn it into a North Carolina-style thing at best, and, and northern seashores at worst. I just hope people can see the value in keeping it as it is. That sounds like an old man kind of get out of my yard. But um, I, I think it's going to be a disaster if, if they develop it. I have nightmares about a, an interstate going down the seaside road, for instance, with making it accessible to millions of people. I think we'd lose a lot if we did. Croxton, Sorry. 
Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, David. Gosh, it's an honor to be here. I love what you do and keep it up. Thank you. Several years ago, Hampton Roads Public Media, WHRO, did a series of short spots called Our Eastern Shore. On each of our podcasts, I will revisit one episode. Listen. Remembering the Fairies. You're listening to Our Eastern Shore. In the 1940s, ferry boats across the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay began carrying vehicles as well as passengers. In 1951, the Chesapeake Bay Ferry's northern terminal was moved from Cape Charles to Kiptipeak into a large modernistic building. There were two lines of World War II concrete freighters sunk offshore to form a breakwater for the harbor. Depending upon the weather conditions, a one-way voyage on one of the seven locally named ferries would take about 90 minutes. The boat would then squeak up to sturdy cable-strapped pilings, the ramp would be lowered, and cars, buses, trucks, and foot passengers would unload. Then the boat would fill again for the return trip. The ferry service was replaced by the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel in April of 1964. The Kiptipeak Terminal is now gone, leaving only the old World War II ships to excite the imagination and the memory. Our Eastern Shore is created by WHRO in partnership with the Barrier Islands Center. You have been listening to Sharing the Mic with David Phillips, produced by the Barrier Islands Center on Virginia's Eastern Shore. Sally Dickinson, Executive Director. Kristen Dennis, Office and Marketing Manager. Megan Ames, Director of Planning and Development. Tracy Jones, Director of Education. The Barrier Island Center is located at 7295 Young Street in Machipongo, Virginia, 23405. The website is www.barrierislandscenter.org. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please direct them to bicpodcast at icloud.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Until next time, stay safe and be well.